Egypt. And it functions for us today as well. We are people who have lived in a world where there are many competing ideas of who God is and who we are. And so as we've been studying Genesis, we've been seeing who we really are and who our God really is. Okay, so that's the context of the book itself. How about the context of our story? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 12. We are starting the story of Abraham in chapter 12. And pastor preached about the first section of chapter 12 at the beginning. We've gone a long way, right? We started all the way back at Adam and Eve, and then we went up to you know, Cain and Abel. We went up to the flood, and then God narrowed it back down to Noah and his family, and eventually they grew, and we got to the Tower of Babel. And we've seen genealogies for the whole world. We've seen genealogies for Adam. We've seen genealogies for Noah. We've seen genealogies for Shem, Noah's son. And now we are coming down, narrowing, narrowing, narrowing to Abraham's family. And God's, the beginning of God's story with the Israelites, who are the children of Abraham. So we just read last week in, in our sermon, we read about God's call to Abraham. What did God tell Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12? He says, leave the land of your fathers, the place of security, the place of safety, and follow me to a land where you've never seen before. And isn't that, doesn't that command sound suspiciously like the calling of Jesus to his disciples? Leave everything and your families and follow me. We might even recognize that God is calling Abram to be a disciple of the one true God. This was more than just a call to obey, right? It was also a package deal with God's promises to Abram. What were those promises? If you look back at the beginning of the chapter, what were those promises? God tells Abram, if you come follow me, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And what is Abram's response to this call and this promise? He responds in faith. He obeys and follows God to a land he had never seen, the land of Canaan. Abram has stepped by faith into this special relationship with God. He has submitted his life to Yahweh, to God, and in turn has become God's follower, God's disciple. And God's response to that obedience in the first 10 verses of this chapter, what else does God do? Once he gets to the land of Canaan, God gives him another promise. God says, to your offspring, I will give this land, the land of Canaan. This is the very beginning of God's relationship with the people of Israel. If you think of God's relationship with Israel as a marriage, this is like the first vows, okay? This is like almost more like a betrothal or like an engagement. It's like, this is the first promise. We're just getting to know each other here. Remember, Abram was not a God follower before this. He was a pagan. Okay, maybe he knew about God a little bit, who knows, but he was a pagan. His family was pagans, were pagans. And so God says, I'm beginning this relationship with you where you are going to become my follower now instead. So it's the very beginning of that relationship. And this is where we come to our story today in chapter 12, verse 11. This is the first test of this new relationship. Notice in verse 11, what happens? Or verse 10, I apologize. Verse 10 now there was a famine in the land. And Abraham, Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. Remember God's promise about the land? God tells Abram, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be great. 
Your name's going to be amazing. You're going to have a big family. And I'm going to give this land to your people. It's going to be a place of abundance and blessing. And right away, what happens? Hmm. There's a famine. Okay. See where this is going. The land of promise, the land Abram's descendants, of which he has none so far, will inherit. Initially in our story, for Abram, things don't seem to be going so well. God has promised blessings for Abram, but what does Abram get instead? Famine. And this was more than just an inconvenience. This was a th serious threat to their lives. We might say, oh, it's like, a, it's like a depression. Yeah, but even worse. Okay? It might, you know, it's a, oh, man, word escaped me. Uh, this is worse than even that. Because this is a threat not only to Abram's thriving, but even to his life. With a drought and famine in those days, people died by the hundreds and thousands. The reader, the Israelites, might reading this for the first time might think, okay, God, where are those grand promises you just made? So what does Abram do in our story? He leaves. Okay? So Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. Okay, this seems like an odd way to start. God has just promised to bless Abram and give him descendants and give this land to him as a blessing for his descendants. And yet the very next thing that happens, there's a famine. And what does Abram do? He leaves the place that God told him to come to and told him this is the land of promise. And so the reader, again, might want to consider, wonder, wait, Will God actually bless Abram? Are these promises worth anything, or are they empty promises? So Abram finds himself in this difficult situation, and how does he respond? Well, again, thinking back to the Israelites, you know, in their day, we might say, oh, Abraham, the great father of our nation, of Israel, the patriarch, he walked with God, the one who left his land of his fathers in faith. Of course, he's going to trust God and obey God, right? Let's keep reading. Verse 12, or verse 11. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Honey, Sarai, indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. He's smart. He starts with a good, you know, with, with flattery here. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Honey, Sarai, please say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. We're reading our story. God has started this relationship. There's a first trial, and we're like, oh, Abram's going to have faith. And instead, we see a faithless Abram. You can almost feel the wheels turning in his mind of Abram. Remember, if you notice, it's when they're almost to the land of Egypt. This is a long trip. He's been traveling from Canaan all the way down to Egypt. It's a long journey. And you can imagine on the journey, he's like thinking about this. He's like, hmm, this might be a problem. I got to think about a solution. You know? I can only imagine the things we might have said in Abram's position. Because I don't know what Abram thought. But I can imagine what we might have thought. Abram might have thought, what choice do I have but to leave for Egypt? I'm only taking care of my family. God has promised to take care of me and protect me no matter where I am. But it would be foolish for me not to take some precautions. Right? Maybe he thought, I know that the Egyptians don't follow my God. I know that they would have no problem with killing me to steal Sarai from me. God wouldn't want me to walk in blindly, right? As the as proverb says, the wise man foresees the evil and hides himself, right? Maybe that's something Abraham thought to himself. Maybe he thought, 
you know, God helps those who help themselves. And we know it wasn't technically a lie. He says, tell them you're my sister. Well, you read later on in chapter 20, Abram does it again, the same, same scheme. Later on in chapter 20, we'll get to that eventually. But in chapter 20, when he's confronted with him, Abram says, well, she is my half-sister. She is, we have the same father, just different mothers. So, so not technically lying here. Perhaps Abram thought that the lie was, in fact, God's way of fulfilling his promise. For how could God make Abram a great nation and bless the world if Abraham were dead? The Egyptians took Sarai and killed him, like, well, that's the end of that promise. So we got to make sure that God's promise isn't threatened. And in fact, Abram's fears are realized. What happens in verses 14 and 15? So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman and she was very beautiful. So we know Abram wasn't just being nice to her. <laughs> we know Abram wasn't just being a smart, you know, savvy husband. No, she really was beautiful. And the Egyptians saw her and the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Abram has this scheme, right? Oh, and, and some commentators I read thought that uh, at that day and age, a lot of times a brother was kind of in charge of marrying off his sisters, especially as an adult. So maybe Abram was thinking, perhaps he was thinking, oh, if I go, I can kind of negotiate and I can tell them no, or I can kind of you know, decide what happens to her as her brother. And like, that does not happen. They show up and Pharaoh's like, yep, taking her. And he takes Sarai. Pharaoh does indeed notice her beauty and takes her into his household. Wasn't Abram proved right? No. Abram's choice failed God's call of faith because Abram believed he had to act sinfully by lying to preserve God's promises. God's promise is never fulfilled through sinful choices. That's not God's desire. Faith means obeying God and demonstrating trust in God to work despite earthly obstacles. Abram utterly fails God's test of faith. Instead of looking to God to fulfill his promises, Abraham trusts in his own scheming and manipulation to preserve himself. Did you notice what he said? Sarai, tell, tell them you're my sister so that I can live. Maybe we can give Abram the benefit of the doubt and that he sincerely believed Sarai would also be best off in this scheme. I think we can maybe give him that benefit. You know, he wasn't just out for himself. But still, Abraham's faithlessness was motivated by fear more than trust in God's promise. His actions, his, his faithlessness jeopardized God's plan while seeking to preserve it. You know, here is Abram saying, God, I'm, you know, we can imagine him thinking, no, I got to keep myself alive here. I have a lot to do. But who is the one who we know later on? We know the rest of the story, so it's kind of not fair. Who is the one who will have the child of promise? Sarai. That's God's plan. Yet now she is in Pharaoh's household, destined to be his wife. And Abram's faithlessness sacrificed others, his wife and his family, for, well, well, for his own well-being. Abram says, look, Sarai, this is the best option. You tell him you're my sister so that I don't get killed. And what happens? Sarai's taken. And not only that, actually, Abram comes out better for it. But before we get to that, the text doesn't, uh, the text actually doesn't say that uh, Ab uh, Sarai was forced into uh, serving uh, Pharaoh as his wife, uh, but that was where it was headed. 
Actually, Pharaoh later says, I'm glad that I didn't, that didn't happen. But that's where that was going, right? That's why he's taking her, okay? And it does not take much to imagine what she went through, even if it was simply the emotional and psychological trial of being taken as a potential concubine for Pharaoh. Sarai agrees to submit to Abram's request, but she didn't really have a lot of choice in what happened to her. She's just a pawn, you know, she's doing what Abram wants, and then she's doing what Pharaoh wants, and she's being moved about. And this is Abram's wife, that he puts her in this situation because he doesn't trust God. He lets it happen to her because he fears for his own life. He fears that God will not protect him. And Abram, and even Abram benefits from it. What does it say there in verse 16? After he takes Sarai, Pharaoh treats Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. Not only does Sarai get taken, but Abram like gets more stuff out of it. <laughs> okay, so you're like, okay, Abram benefits from this lie. Here, as I mentioned, is the mother of the promised son Isaac, and she is, being, she is taken by another man, by Pharaoh. God has a plan for Sarai. He plans to exalt her in his plan to provide salvation for the world. Right? Through whom does the Messiah come? Through her and her children. This is the plan of God to bless all the nations of the world, to bless us. As we were looking at the Lord's Supper today, Christ came through her children. This is God's plan. And she is living in Pharaoh's house because of Abram's faithlessness. And you, can you imagine what the Israelite audience, once again, is thinking? Again, remember, we're talking, this is written to the Israelites. They're reading this, and they might be thinking, this is the great Abraham we've read about? Well, what's he doing with these decisions? Right? How in the world did he get out of this mess? Does Abraham in this story so far seem deserving to be blessed? Does he deserve to become a great nation? Just sacrificing his wife for his own life? Does he even deserve to bless the entire world through his children? No. This is not the kind of person who deserves that. But those questions, and even Abram's failure, points us to the purpose of this passage. This passage is not about the great character and success of Abram, but the greatness and love of Abram's God. These stories in the Pentateuch were not primarily given to present these great heroes of the faith that we just are supposed to be just like, though that is an element of it. We see that in Hebrews 11. But rather, more importantly, to demonstrate the greatness of the God who saves even those who are undeserving. Because what happens next in our story? Does Abram come up with some amazing plot and scheme? And does, he, does he say the right thing and all of a sudden Abram figures it out and fixes everything? It's not Abram. Give verse 17, but the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. We've seen Abram's faithlessness, but even more importantly, we see God's faithfulness. God is the one who rescues Abram and Sarai because of God's character, not Abram's character. It is not Abraham who acts, but God. God comes to the rescue of Sarai and Abram. Without God, action, without God acting, this story was like headed for disaster. And what does God do? He sends severe plagues on Pharaoh and his household. The text doesn't really tell us how Pharaoh figured out what was going on, but somehow Pharaoh figures it out. Right? He gets all these plagues, and he comes, and he, he sends for Abram, and he says, Abram, what were you doing 
telling me this is your sister when this is your wife, something tips him off. Pharaoh, and what does Pharaoh do? Look at verses 18 through 20. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. Pharaoh sends Abram away with his wife and all that he had. Pharaoh doesn't try to punish Abram for this lie. He just wants him gone. Just get out of here. You're causing problems. Pharaoh might have had an idea that if he tried to keep Sarai or anything and punish, Pharaoh, or punish Abram, that these plagues might not have gone away. So I think Pharaoh's kind of smart here. He's like, this is the way to get rid of these plagues. Just get rid of them both. On a side note, do you notice the parallels of another story we actually were already talking about today? There's a famine in the land of Canaan, and the Israelites, Abram and his family, leave the land of Canaan to survive. They go down to Egypt, and someone in their group is taken as prisoner, as captive, and God sends plagues on Pharaoh to rescue his people from the Egyptians. Again, remember, if you think the Israelites as the audience here, I'm sure they would have noticed the similarities. And in the end, Pharaoh sends Abram away with more than when he came. This is the story of Abram. The first test of the relationship between Abraham and God, Abraham totally fails. He gives in to fear and trusts his own deceptive scheming. He completely forgets to trust God and endangers his own wife and future children to protect himself. And for this sin is Abram rebuked and punished and, you know, scolded? No. In fact, Abraham is protected and he's blessed more. Sarai is rescued without Abram having even to lift, lift a finger. He receives gifts and wealth from Pharaoh and leaves Egypt better off than when he started coming into Egypt. Why would God protect and bless him when Abram did not live in faith? Because of who God is. And that's what this story is meant to teach the Israelites in the wilderness. This is who our God is, the one who's rescued you. The God... Yahweh, who brought you out of Egypt, he is a God of faithful and steadfast love. Remember the promises God made to Abram back at the beginning of the chapter? I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. Abram had believed in faith and had entered this covenant with God. Did God give these promises with the caveat that, oh, they'd only come to pass if Abraham remained faithful all the time? Would God rescind them the moment Abram failed to walk by faith? No. God would fulfill these promises because of his own character. God is faithful to those whom he loves. Think about the Israelites. What did they do in Egypt that deserved rescue? They were just slaves. They did nothing. Yet God comes to rescue them. God is a God who demonstrates faithful, steadfast love to those who don't deserve it. That's what grace is. God is teaching this to the people of Israel in the wilderness and to us today. God has chosen them, God had chosen them, and would demonstrate steadfast love to them. So also, just as Abram, God saved Abram, despite Abram's failures and sin, 
God saves us because not of because of our obedience, but because of the obedience of another who was faithful. Jesus. Do you think we are really any different than Abram? How did we enter our relationship with God? God's promise accepted by faith. As the Bible reveals, God's grace and mercy was never given by simply God overlooking or ignoring sin. Rather, God is gracious and merciful because he provides the antidote to sin. That's what we were looking at during our Lord's Supper time. And that antidote, that answer is found in Jesus Christ. Some verses from the New Testament. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 3.16, which I'm sure many of you know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do we deserve it? No. What does Romans 5.8 say? But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Every single one of us is born into a sinful world as sinners. We naturally go our own way in rebellion to God. We break his laws, and just like Adam and Eve did back in Genesis chapter 3, we bring upon ourselves the righteous judgment of God, which is eternal death. You here today, if you trust in your own works, you stand condemned before God, the righteous judge. But God is gracious. God provides a means of forgiveness and salvation. What does Ephesians chapter 2 say? And you who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, among whom also we have once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know what that word mercy is? We see mercy throughout the Bible. Some translations, and I think rightfully so, in the Old Testament translate that word mercy as steadfast love. It's the same idea. Steadfast love to us. Through the sacrificial gift of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, God provided a way for sinners to be included in the promise of eternal life from God. You and I, by repenting of our sin and trusting and following Jesus, can be included by faith into a relationship with God. A relationship characterized by God's peace, God's love, and God's joy. If you are still trusting in your own works today to save you, or if you are still in rebellion against God and don't care, you repent today, there is mercy and grace available. Turn from your sin and trust only in God's grace by faith. Trust and obey in Jesus for forgiveness. And God still acts with steadfast love for his people today. Many of us here, we are saved, and yet we are like Abram. We already have entered the relationship with God. We have received the promise of eternal life and spiritual transformation by faith in Christ, you may be here today, and like Abram, in the testings and trials of your life, have forgotten God's promise. You may have, like Abram, returned to your own planning, your own scheming, to achieve the blessings that God has promised to you. 
Perhaps you have been motivated by fear in your decisions and have not acted in faith. Perhaps you have jeopardized what you know to be God's will for you or your family by your sinful decisions. Perhaps you are dealing with the fruits of past sins or the sins of others, and you doubt whether God still loves you. Perhaps you, are, perhaps you empathize with the Israelites, who even after being rescued by, from slavery in Egypt, felt that God abandoned them in the desert. We looked at this last time in the children's church lesson. God brings them out of the wilderness, and what do they do within like days? After going through the Red Sea, uh, God brought us out here to kill us. But that's our heart as well. God has done so much for us, and yet so often, quickly, we turn and say, God doesn't care anymore. He's brought me here for me only to suffer. Then you, today, need to be reminded that our God is a God of steadfast love, a God of faithful protection, a God of continual blessing. God's faithfulness to you is not dependent on your faithfulness to him, but is based on your identification with his son, Jesus. Jesus was completely faithful to God and obedient. Look at his baptism, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. How does the Father feel about his Son, Jesus? He is beloved. He is pleased always. Jesus never gives the Father any reason for displeasure. Jesus always, only, every, ever pleased the Father with perfect obedience. And when you are saved, you're identified with Jesus. His obedience becomes yours, just as your sin becomes his on the cross. What does 2 Corinthians 5.21 say? For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You can become the righteousness of God. That's not by you actually being perfect, because you will never achieve it in this life. You can become God's very righteousness by taking on the righteousness of Christ, which is perfect. And look at the blessings that we receive in Jesus, right? God promises blessing. Here's some blessings for you, and there's a lot of verses, so stick with me. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You could preach a whole sermon on what that means, being holy without blame before God. Having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, we've been made his children, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. God accepts us in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness, of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will. Remember, God is not hiding from you. God is making known to you the mystery of his will, which is the gospel of salvation. That all things will be brought together in Christ, in him. In him we also obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. We can glorify and be the praise to God because of the righteousness and sacrifice of Christ. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel, in whom also you, having believed, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've received the Holy Spirit of promise. 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That is God's faithfulness to you if you are saved. If you are in Christ, then you are pleasing to God today. Because when God looks at you, he sees his perfectly obedient son. You and I, we know our faults and our flaws and our fears and our failures. And God knows them too. But in his love, he is steadfast toward you because of Jesus. And it's not unjust because your sin has been removed and set on Christ. And he carried it away from you at his death. His perfect life has been set on you. So, no matter whether you have walked by faith or by fear, whether you have failed or succeeded, you come out more blessed spiritually than when you entered because God is steadfast in his love toward you in Christ Jesus. So does God's, that brings us to our last point, so does God's faithfulness mean that, okay, God's faithful to me, he loves me, I have Jesus, I can do whatever I want, right? No, not by any means. Notice Abram's response to God for his gracious salvation. Verse, verse chapter 13. Then Abram went up from Egypt, and he went with his wife and all he had and lot with him to the south. And Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar, which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. If you look back in chapter 12, you know where Abram started before this famine? between Bethel and Ai, building an altar in worship to God. And through this whole story, where does he end up? Back at that same altar in worship to God. Abram's response to grace is worship. Notice where Abram started. We talked about that. He ends up back there. And what has changed for Abram? He started here. He went all the way down to Egypt, had this whole story, and he ended up back at the exact same place he started. But something's changed. He has received greater blessing physically, but he's also received the greater blessing of experiencing God's faithful, steadfast love. Those who experience the grace of God are moved to worship God. God's grace does not lead us to greater sin. Instead, for the redeemed, it leads us to greater faith and obedience. It generates greater love for God in return. And as we know, what does the Apostle Paul say about this? Is it a license for sin in Romans 6? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Hey, we sin more and more grace. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Trials, your path through the Egypt of your life, even your own failures, can bring greater blessing and a deeper knowledge of God and a walk closer with him. So what can we take away from this? Well, first of all, recognize God's faithful character and his steadfast love. God, by his nature, does not change. The same God was with Adam and Eve is the same God with Abram, is the same God with the Israelites in the wilderness, is the same God with us today. In fact, he cannot change. His attitude toward you, love, mercy, grace, bought by Christ's obedience and death, will and cannot change. Look at Psalm 118. Again, steadfast love, mercy. And it's not the whole psalm, but several verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his 
Steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Sorry, I got excited. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph upon those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men, including yourself. Look at the end of this psalm in 27. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is who God is. So you must recognize God's faithful character and his steadfast love. You must also respond to God's faithful love with worship and faith. We've seen God's heart toward us. What is your heart in response to God? Are you frustrated with God? Are you bitter towards him today? Today, will we call on the name of the Lord just like Abram did? For deliverance, for hope, for peace, with thanksgiving? Are you trusting in your own way or in God's way? Abram just demonstrated a lack of faith, and through trials, he learned to trust God, but we can live in faith today. And if you look at the story of Abram, what happens, the pinnacle of his story, when God asks for his own very own son? And in faith, what does Abram do? Sure, God, because I know that you will keep your promise somehow. The New Testament says that Abram believed God would even raise him from the dead. Abram has become so convinced by that time in his story that he's like, even if we kill my son, God will somehow bring him back to life because I know God's promise is sure. And that's the grace, transformation of grace that we see in Abram's life. In your life today, do you trust God? There's many areas we must live by faith in our finances. Are we living by faith? Are we giving to God and others even when it, we don't know how we're going to make it? In our families, in your family, are you living by faith and trusting God to direct and protect your children, parents? Or are you controlled by, what, by fear of what might happen to them? Do you believe that it is your choices, your control, your actions that will bring about their blessed, perfect life? Or is it something that God must do in their life? In our witness to others, do we share our faith openly? Or do we hide it because we're afraid of what might happen, whether rejection or even persecution or ridicule? Faith means obeying God, demonstrating trust in him to work despite earthly obstacles. Even as a Christian, do you still believe that you have to earn God's favor? There are Christians who are miserable because they still believe that they have to work after having been saved to earn God's blessing. Are you resting in the completed work of Jesus on your behalf? Do you pursue holiness out of thanksgiving and joy, or is it out of obligation and fear of what happens if you don't? If you have been saved by faith in Christ, then you are also to live by faith. Saved by faith? Live by faith. If you think you are working for God's favor, then you are living like a slave and not like a son or a daughter. You are insulting God by denying his gracious love towards you. 
you are denying God's pleasure with Jesus. Because who is our obedience? It's Christ. So if we have to complete that somehow, we're insinuating that Jesus wasn't enough for me. Rest in Jesus and his salvation. Rest in his finished work. Rest in the God of steadfast love, of faithfulness, who saves even those who don't deserve it by his grace. Father, I thank you for today. I pray that you would help us to honor and to love you.